Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. Today I'm excited to have Mike Smothio, uh, who's an experienced entrepreneur, investor, and business leader, driven by the desire to turn ideas into reality and bought and scaled a small business into a publicly traded company worth nearly a billion dollars in value. Has a deep understanding of the hard work, dedication, and grit that truly powers successful entrepreneurship. Today, he's a founder and managing director of Next Coast Ventures. Uh, Mike is a champion for new generation of entrepreneurs building disruptive companies in big markets. Uh, his book, Mr. Monkey and Me, is a real talk guide for entrepreneurs who want to cut through the noise to cultivate a mindset that supports greatness. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here. Awesome. So, um, you know, you, you had an uh, interesting journey. Uh, you uh, you based uh, out of uh, Ohio, then you, you, you did the MBA and then you started your business. Uh, how did you how do you get your start uh, uh, in, in the crazy world of startups and what was your, uh, you know, childhood like? Uh, yeah, that's a long, uh, <laughs> it's a complicated question. I mean, the short answer is um, I've been really lucky in my life, but I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. I grew up in a, a, a really industrial part of the United States, uh, Toledo, Ohio. If any of your listeners have ever been there, if not, I would not put it on their list of, of must visits. But, um, you know, a, a hard town. I was able to work my way out, get to college, work my way through college. Um, I started my career in financial services, started up as a CPA, and then went and worked on Wall Street, uh, two jobs that I absolutely hated. But I learned a lot. I learned the language of business and was able to, therefore, go get my MBA at Northwestern in Chicago. And then I moved out to Silicon Valley in the late 90s. Uh, I really just, I was not a technologist or an engineer. But at that time, I saw what was happening there. It was the hotbed of entrepreneurship. And I just wanted to be part of it. So that was my first initial movement. Um, I went out there to work for Morgan Stanley. I did that for a couple of years, uh, really during the dot-com boom. And then fortunately got recruited by a guy named Mark Andreessen. Uh, he and Ben Horowitz now much more well-known with Andreessen Horowitz, but they had just sold Netscape to AOL. They were starting a new business. And I was one of the first non-founders to join that company and got to go work there literally from concept all the way through IPO. Uh, before I, I left, I quit, raised a small pool of capital and then bought my own business and then ran it for 13 years. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, the couple of interesting things that you pointed out, uh, what was the experience working with, you know, companies like Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley? And uh, also, you know, you did your MBA from Kellogg School of Management. Do you think uh, such management studies are relevant during these times? And would, would you give the same advice to somebody who's just starting up? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I was, um, like, Kenley, when I was getting going, I just wanted to get out and get a job. I wanted to make a little money. <laughs> it was my first job. Uh, paid me something like $27,000. And I was suddenly the wealthiest person in my family. Uh, no one in my family had ever made that much money to put it in perspective. Um, you know, it's so my first job. I wasn't sure what I would do with all of my money. Uh, then I paid rent and taxes <laughs> and realized that uh, I was uh, going to struggle a little bit. But, but anyways, I, I really wanted to do two things. I wanted to, first of all, just get a, understand the business world. And I wanted to get a foundation. Um, I, one of the things I think I've done really well in my life is always seek out advice from other folks. And I got some good advice early on that said, you know, your first couple of jobs are about getting a foundation, like building a house. 
So I didn't like the jobs. I remember my first day walking in at, at Ernst & Young, the accounting firm I worked for and going, oh my gosh, what have I done? I made a horrible mistake. Um, a lot of it because I just didn't like the subject matter or didn't seem like a career, but I, I did both those jobs for two years so that I could really have that foundation. Um, and candidly, when I look back, it served me better than I would have ever expected. Uh, and then business school, when I went to business school, I just wanted to get exposure to non-financial. Given my experience, I tried to get learn about marketing, learn about organizational design, all the things that I hadn't candidly uh, learned so far. And that gave me a pretty good base when I headed out to the Valley in the late 90s. Uh, interesting. You, you also worked with uh, Mac Anderson and Ben Horowitz. I think Hot Things About Hot Things is one of the most requested uh, favorite books uh, for, for the guests on the podcast. But what was the experience working with them so early? And, uh, you know, any learnings that you can share with the listeners? Out there? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I was, um, it, I give the example. It was kind of like if you had watched a, watched a marathon on TV or something, and then you suddenly went to Kenya to train with two-hour marathoners. People are runners, right? You just, it was, you can learn and read books about what it was like to be a startup. Um, and then suddenly to go work for two of the most prolific entrepreneurs, most well-known entrepreneurs at one of the hottest companies in the Valley in late 90s. Uh, I remember leaving my job on Morgan Stanley on a Friday, wearing a collared shirt and, and having all these rules that I was supposed to work with and all that. And then dropping in um, at, and we were in a warehouse in Sunnyvale, California, and it was just chaos. Uh, and so quickly I had to learn like, oh, wow, this is the wild, wild west. But the energy, the commitment, the passion was obvious. Um, so I, I learned a ton and I actually lived through, I love the book. I think Ben's an amazing writer, obviously amazing writer, but I got to live through chapters one through seven or so of the hard thing. Um, and it's true. It was just it was just a crazy time. Interesting. And and you also talked about purchasing service uh, source. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, about you know buying businesses or building it from scratch. Uh, you know, why did you go on to, on to purchase a company and then build it uh, from there? Yeah, you know, I really I really want to be. It was really funny. I mean, I, so you also the question asked, what did I learn? I learned so much from Ben and Mark in that period of time. And, you know, kind of like everything else at the time, I didn't realize it. And then when I went to do my own deal, I was like, wow, that, that was an amazing experience. But I wanted to be an entrepreneur watching Ben operate. He was the CEO. Mark was the chairman. Watching them operate just furthered my desire to go run something, have an impact, build something. I had one problem. I didn't have any ideas. And at the time, if you go back, if we're at Web 3.0, this is, you know, Web 1.0. LoudCloud was actually supposed to be it was basically the it was what AWS is or Azure. So it was supposed to be a web platform that automated a bunch of uh, aspects of, of running an internet site. But it was a highly technical time to start a technology company. And I, non-engineering, didn't have any bur bursting or brilliant ideas. I saw the entrepreneur through acquisition, what it's called a search fund, as a better way for me to go become an entrepreneur. And so I raised a small pool of capital. Uh, basically paid myself next to nothing, started calling businesses across the U.S. and luckily found a great business to buy. But it was a very different or non-traditional path to entrepreneurship. No, I think that's not super interesting that you, you went on to buy a company and then, then build it from there. And, you know, what's a, what's a mindset needed to, to grow a large business? You've been part of 
you know, early startups where you, which went on to become really big, but uh, what's a mindset one should have if somebody wants to really uh, go big and like go for an IPO? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things I, I learned from my own experience now is, first of all, it starts with, I think there's sometimes people can go imagine that their idea isn't big enough. Every great company starts with a pretty simple idea, right? Starbucks started with one coffee shop. Nike started with selling shoes out of Phil Knight's back, uh, the back of his car. I mean, it, businesses start with one key idea that's differentiated. But I think from there, the difference between being an average business and a really big business, uh, I remember working with Mark and he said to me, I want every advantage I can get, fair or unfair, within legal and ethical boundaries. But it was just like, a, I'm going to look for every advantage I can get. And then secondly, I think it takes a mindset that says, I'm going to focus on building something extraordinary but I'm also going to realize that it takes step by step. And there's a lot of cliches around this, but it's a little bit like if you wanted to go climb a mountain, uh, you don't just try and point to the top and say, that's where we're going. And you don't just stand there. You got to start walking and make the steps, but know that you're continuing to push forward, but success in building a business typically takes a really long time, takes patience, hard work, and all those aspects that are, again, easy to talk about. But I think when you're in the seat, hard to hard to keep reminding yourself. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, it uh, takes 10 years to build something, something good, something, uh, you know, uh, something of size. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about uh, uh, your book, Mr. Monkey and Me, you know, what made you, what made you write a book and or what is it that you call the, the shape formula? Yeah, well, a little bit like, uh, I joke, it's a little bit like entrepreneurship. If I knew how, known how hard it was to write a book, I probably wouldn't have done it. So <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Uh, like, you know, starting off a business, if you really know how hard it is, it's, it's really hard to get going. But I, I wrote it because, um, and first of all, all the proceeds of the book go to charity. This is not a profit endeavor. Um, I wrote it to inspire entrepreneurs and help them with the mental aspect. And it also came from what I saw in terms of content for entrepreneurs I think podcasts have really helped with this, but prior to podcasts like yours, it was either a how-to manual, here's how to write a business plan, here's how to form a company, or on the other end of the spectrum, kind of the, what I find a very unhelpful content around what does Elon Musk do before breakfast, or you know why does Mark Zuckerberg wear the same color shirt, kind of these short form contents of highly, highly successful people that are interesting to read, but absolutely not all relevant to the average entrepreneur. And what I found was no one was really talking about the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. How do you start to develop some of the traits that will help you get from starting a business to continue to run it? Uh, and so that's what I focused on. I developed the shape formula based on that. And to be clear, the shape formula wasn't based on my own experiences, some of that, but it was what I learned from working with folks like Mark and Ben from my own experiences and failures I had, uh, successes and failures. And then I pulled a bunch of tremendously successful entrepreneurs to try and understand what made them tick and also took my experiences at Mexico Ventures here in Austin, Texas. So those four data sources came together through some, some robust research and that's what really created the shape formula. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting. And uh, you, you uh, now run Next Coast Ventures, you know, 
uh, what made you uh, you know go from being an operator to founder to uh, to now VC? Uh, what what's the thesis behind uh, Next Coast Ventures? Yeah, well, I think for me personally, um, I was just at a point in my career. I, I again like to that you know you know how hard it is. I thought about going back to operate, but Kenley, um, my wife and I just had our fourth child. We moved to Austin. I just didn't think I could go and put in the time that was required to be very direct. Um, but, but, but also I wanted to give something back. And I know that's what a lot of venture capitalists say, but I was a point in my career where I thought um, we could build a firm that could give advice, give capital, give counsel and, and bring resources to entrepreneurs and do that in the next coast market. And that was a big push for myself and my co-founder, Tom Ball, to form Next Coast Ventures. So we started that six years ago. Our tagline is built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And in terms of themes, we're looking for, uh, we publish them every year on our website, but it tends to be around areas where we believe innovation continues to happen, but also um, that those that fit in next coast markets. So we're focused on things like the future of retail, future of work, um, self-care hacking is what we call it. So how do you think about your own body in a different way? Uh, future of education has popped up for us after COVID. Uh, but they're all on our website, but we really take four to six teams that we get excited about and then do market research and then pursue entrepreneurs that are building businesses within those themes. Interesting. And, you know, how have Next Coast Ventures, um, you know, uh, did you have to change your approach to investing in the, in the last couple of years, uh, considering there's been, you know, a lot of uh, interesting new technologies, especially uh, when it comes to finance and uh, work and retail that has come up? Yeah, it's. A, yeah, I think you know it's a it's an interesting job, and that you kind of, you constantly have to be changing what you're doing and how you're thinking about it. I think the other thing that we we've, we've watched is there's never been. It's a great time to be an entrepreneur right now. There's the tools to build a business, the distribution alternatives, and the capital are all in abundance. So we're thinking about where businesses that we can invest in that one, where we know something about, and so eliminating some areas of deep specialization, but also looking at areas where the fund size we have, it's a couple hundred million dollars where we can play competitively. And then last but not least, we're looking for entrepreneurs that are willing to do what we call eat glass, which is a visceral term that is not recommended to do actually, but it's just a mindset of the entrepreneur that says, I know what it takes. I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and just everything you can to be successful. Got it. And, uh, you know, you're based out of uh, Austin, which is, you know, uh, an upcoming uh, startup hub. Uh, how, how's Next Coast Ventures, you know, helping the uh, helping grow the next uh, generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's really fun to be here. It actually, Austin right now reminds me of when I moved to the Valley in the late 90s. It's got that same kind of energy. Tremendous amount of uh, professionals moving here, great entrepreneurial community, and now more and more capital. I think for us, um, what we try and do is everyone around our investment team has actually run businesses. So we've been operators. Um, and what we try and do is balance like bringing that advice and helping you think about your job without doing your job for you. Um, it, it seems to work. It doesn't mean we're the best. It's just one alternative. But what we really trying to do is provide our entrepreneurs with access to what we call our expert network, company building playbooks and our own expertise to really help them get from where we invest to the, to the next stage of capital. Got it. And, uh, you know, especially during the times of COVID, 
you know, what what advice would you give to entrepreneurs looking to uh, looking to build a community uh, among their uh, employees uh, so that you know they could be uh, value and trust among employees and the employer? Yeah, it's it's such a great question. I mean, I, I actually think the biggest thing that a leader can do, an entrepreneur can do, is and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I think it's one, it's helping them understand what you're trying to achieve. And I think when you say that, sometimes people want to go to some aspirational, we're changing the world. There's a tremendous number of amazing businesses built that don't have a social mission. If you have a social mission, that's nice to have and great. But I think just if you're selling sunglasses online, then just explain that you want to have the best sunglasses business online. That's okay. Um, so I think it's understanding what you're trying to do, being realistic about when you can achieve it. And the thing that I think I struggled with the most as an entrepreneur is authenticity. So being comfortable and sharing what you're, you, what you're excited about and what you're worried about in a calm, direct manner is, uh, is a really hard skill to do. But I think it's a requirement to get people to trust you, to follow you, and then and really take part in the mission. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, millennials and Gen Zs uh, are, are an audience who uh, are uh, a generation who have, uh, you, you know, spent a lot of time with uh, mobile devices and internet, and they're now entering uh, the adulthood uh, and, and they're joining the workforce. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on the future of work, uh, especially with, with the younger generation coming into, into the workforce? Uh, uh, you know what? What do the younger generation want uh, in in the in the working life, and what sort of communication uh, deliverability would they want uh, in the company that they work for? Yeah, well, I think the first part of that is it's interesting. I mean, there's a, a tendency or temptation to say, "Well, this new generation needs to modify and you know get get grow up, if you will," which is a pejorative term in that regard. I think it's I think it's the opposite. I think this is an amazing opportunity, a generation of great um, contributors. So how so challenging yourself first and entrepreneurs like how do I meet them where where they're most adept? We've got a company, uh, not a plug, but a company called Onboarder that is all about employment engagement. So that first ninety days of getting the employee comfortable in the working environment. And I think in the old world, you'd say, okay, put down your phone, come sit in this conference room, and we're going to tell you about our values. Well, that's not how they've grown up. And so how do you bring tools, opportunities, communication that are consistent with the way they've, they've grown up? I think that's first and foremost. I think secondly is, and, and in COVID has, has changed a bunch of things before, is I, I don't believe we're ever going back to the, the work environment that I certainly cut my teeth in, where commute an hour, go to an office from nine to five, stay late if the boss is there, all that BS. I think um, remote work, distributed workforces, being able to have you know flex in, flex out space. I think those are all the things that are going to really resonate. And candidly, that's how you know I've got teenagers now. I'm watching how they learn, how they go to school. That's what they're being trained. And so I think the big challenge is how do you bring tools and resources that that enable them to be phenomenal versus trying to recast their expectations, which I think is kind of a fruitless effort. If that makes sense. And, and by the way, sorry, on the future of work, we, we've spent a lot of time, I'll ramble a bit, but we spent a lot of time at Nexcus thinking about a post-pandemic world, which we seem to be in now we're, we were out of, now we're back in, but putting things in buckets. And the first bucket is what are the things that are going to change, go, go back to the way they were? What are the things that probably irreversible 
and what are the things in the middle? Uh, and we do that one to try and have an informed view, but really trying to invest in the second and third bucket because there's a bunch of stuff that we've already seen. Once you can go back to live music or live sporting events, they're going to snap back, uh, restaurants, et cetera, travel versus work versus telemedicine, things like that, that I think are, are really have been changed forever. And, and how do you then invest behind those changes? Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. And, uh, interesting, you, you talked about future work. Do, do you think uh, some, some of the biggest companies can come out of even remote places uh, they need not be in, in, in the biggest of cities like the New York and the Silicon Valley? Uh, or do you think uh, once this gets over, uh, you know, most of the network will be in, in, in the biggest cities? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, I, I hate to say that it depends, but I actually think it, it depends on the jobs, the skill level. It depends on, you know, like actually most of our portfolio companies would say our engineering teams are being as or more productive they, than they ever were remotely. The ones who are struggling are customer success, sales, marketing. And I don't mean to cast a be too specific on the functions, but you know, personality types. I think what you have to do is provide a workforce, a workplace that works for various personality types. But, and I think this is the big but, is how do you then build culture? And I think that's the thing that hasn't really been, they certainly haven't had the test of time. I know when I was running my organization, we ended up being 3,000 employees spread around the globe. We still had physical centers, um, and it was a way for employees to interact, for us to talk about values, beliefs, and community. Uh, I know that's able to be done in a remote fashion, but how do you do it at scale? I think that's where, and there's certainly some great new tools that are emerging for that, but can you build a business from startup all the way to scale with the culture and community that you want in a remote fashion? I think we're going to figure that out in the next five years. Interesting. And you, you also talked about uh, self-care hacking. Uh, is, is self-care hacking about, uh, about healthcare? Is it more about uh, your mental health? Uh, can you, can you explain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, were, we were very fortunate. We had this theme back in 2016 pre-pandemic and, and basically said, there's a bunch of information now that consumers have access to they haven't had in the past. And it started with Fitbits or Apple Watches or garments like I wear, where you could start to capture information. And we thought as consumers, certainly the digital natives started to have access to that. How would they think different about preventative care, not, not pre-diagnostic care? And um, that led us to some, some great investments and then COVID accelerated. But really, we believe the consumer's desire to gain more information, to make life choices based on that information is only going to go up. And then also throw in COVID, alternatives such as direct-to-consumer testing, lab testing, we're an investor in a company called Everly Health, uh, telemedicine, all these aspects. We're involved in a company called BrainCheck, which does um, cognitive decline testing via an iPad. All of these things that, can be you probably wouldn't have done pre-pandemic. You know, certainly generations of folks wanted to go see their doctor, do those things in person, the pandemic forced us to rethink it. And I think there's a big shift coming in all of healthcare 
we're just not, we're not doctors and not deep med- medical practitioners. So we're not going to do anything on the diagnostic or, or actual um, cure side of it. We're focused more on the preventative and information side of it. And I would put mental health in that category as well. And, uh, you know, what I've seen in the last couple of years is that uh, there's been, uh, you know, compression of deployment cycles in, in venture capital across the ecosystems where record number of, uh, you know, money has been has been put in. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the deployment cycles, uh, you know, across uh, uh, across the, the venture stage? And do you think it's going to ex- accelerate if you're going to be in the, in the remote Look. Yeah, you know, it's um, you know record year, of course, for all capital deployment. Certainly, venture is um, is is leading that. I personally think a double sided coin. I mean, one, there's a lot of capital out there. There's a lot of folks that haven't been through a downturn investing or receiving that capital. So, you know, I, I was there with Mark and Ben when we were. My joke in '99, we had 50 firms a day calling to give us money. 12 months later, we were calling everyone who we knew begging for money. Uh, I also was operating in 07 to 09. It's all the same cycle. So uh, just a reminder to folks that, you know, cycles do happen and we're in a long end of the bull market, but I'm not, that's, I'm not a macro economist, but I do think um, there is a lot of capital and cycles are happening faster. That can be scary at some guards, but I, I fundamentally believe that every part of our business, our life is just in the early stages of being changed. And, and you can go by category I don't think there's a business out there that doesn't get modified in some way, shape, or form. It may be big or small. So my excitement around innovation is just, uh, I think we're, you know, second or third inning of some of these major trends. Um, and I don't, I think that, that therefore the capital deployment, both the pace uh, and the amounts are somewhat justified just by the opportunity that innovation provides. And, uh, where do you think most investors go wrong when it comes to uh, market sizing? Oh man, I, I can go for my own. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, think, uh, I think to do this job, I think to be an investor or to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. I think this the end day, if you're a pessimist, it's kind of a, you're just going to say no to everything. Um, I personally found, I can't speak to most. I personally found when I made mistakes on, um, market size, it was using a timing issue versus a market size issue. Uh, you know, in, in the long run, all these things are going to happen. I can go back to uh, 1999, sounding like a dinosaur, but we most of the web 2.0, not 3.0 stuff that's happening, think about delivery of pet food. There was a pets.com. I mean, all these things, a lot of these things had happened. A lot of the delivery services had happened, but there wasn't scale, there wasn't cell phones, there wasn't et cetera that made it easier to do. And Mark and Ben, they started LoudCloud, which became Opsware. That was AWS, but, but we did it. We didn't have virtualization. We didn't have broadband. We didn't have containers. We didn't have a bunch of software developments that made it easier. So, so they were right on the trend. They were just, you know, call it seven to nine years early. So I, so I, I tend to think, um, absent the just crazy, silly ideas that never work, most of it is your thesis is right, but things always take longer than you expect them to. And, and that's certainly where I've, I've made more than my share of mistakes. All right. And, uh, you, you know, uh, what have been some of your, some of the biggest misses when it comes to, you know, uh, investing into, into startups, any anti-portfolio companies that you could think of? 
I know. It's always the worst part is doing the anti-portfolio because you're like, ah. Um, you know, I think where we have been, I, I, so I would say a couple of things rather than companies, but themes that we we missed. Um, certainly fintech. I mean, I, I was I had fundamental belief a few years ago that a lot of the things that are that were emerging were somehow fall into the arms of regulatory oversight uh, that hasn't happened. I, I just saw an article today, for example, with some of the buy now pay later things, where finally in the U.S. Um, some of the consumer protection agency, consumer protection is stepping in and saying, wait a minute. I mean, there's always been like governance around making sure that the American consumer didn't take on too much debt and usury laws. So they didn't have too high of interest rates. It seemed to me that some of the technology waves are happening, certainly like in fintech are happening so fast that regulatory is struggling to keep up. But I would say that's an area where we were not super active. Um, I also think insure tech is an area that um, so we didn't have the specialization for, but another big category that candidly we missed. Um, and then blockchain, crypto, seen it, watched it, invested personally, but we haven't had made a handful of investments there. But I think that's a space too that's just, you know, it's it's bonkers to use a technical term right now. And one that we're, we're kind of watching a little bit to see how the dust settles on. Crypto meaning more blockchain NFTs and distributed organizations. Got it. And you, you know, how, how do you ensure that uh, you, you do not have any unconscious bias from your past successes? <laughs> that's the hardest thing in the world. I mean, those are two great questions. Um, it's so doggone hard. I think that's the hardest part of this job is, you know, both. So revisionist history is also like, oh, I'm glad we passed on that. We knew it wasn't going to work. Or boy, when we invested in, in her, we knew she was going to be awesome. Like it's really easy to revisionist history. So a couple of things we do at Nexco is one, we write a memo, a pretty robust memo for venture for each deal we do. And in that case, and we share it with the entrepreneur. We say, here's what we see as the market. Here's our financial forecast. But then we also spend a lot of time on what we see as the risk at the time because everything has risk. And so putting that down on paper, writing what the risks are, what we expect the upside to be. And then when things work really well or don't work well, pulling that memo out is probably the best way to avoid the revisionist history. And I think if you can avoid revisionist history, you can then therefore at least try and contain those biases. But um, that's hard. I mean, I, I think walking around in this world as humans, we have so many biases just everywhere we look. So trying to, to normalize that, um, you know, meditation and alcohol, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's really singing hard to... Uh, to control that aspect of it. Interesting. I, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh, so many. Um, you know, I would say I'll, I'll give you my pre my, my as an operator. I love shoe. I still love shoe dog. I love the hard thing. I love the everything store I, because they just underscore how doggone hard it is, how long it takes and the passion required. Um, I'd say for me now, um, trillion dollar coach is my, my go-to business book. It's about a gentleman named Bill Campbell. He was a, uh, former football coach. He ended up being CEO of Intuit. And then he went on to become the coach for some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the Valley, including Steve Jobs, Eric Schmidt. So Eric Schmidt wrote this book from Google uh, about Bill. Bill was on the board at LoudCloud. Bill became a, a mentor to me. And I bring that up because he was the most generous person in terms of time and advice. He really just wanted to help folks. And he didn't look for personal recognition in fact, hated personal recognition and didn't do it for monetary reasons. 
And so at this point in my career, when I think about what would I like to be able to do in the next chapter of it, it's really to help entrepreneurs. And so that's my kind of true north in terms of uh, keeping me focused on that. We put that in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, your your entrepreneurial journey or, or your venture capital firm, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, and I read I write about this in this this book only because it's a learning, Mr. Monkey and me. But you know, I, I think self awareness is probably the part that I lacked, um, and I caused a lot of pain. <laughs> it was not the most. Uh, you know, I had great employees that worked for me. I didn't say thank you enough. I didn't give enough credit to those that work uh, with me and for me. Um, and I think a lot of that was due to self-awareness. Um, and so one thing I really look for now in entrepreneurs and try and coach around, but is understanding yourself, what you're good at, what you're not good at, getting some sort of honest reflection of where you're performing and not performing. Really hard to do, but I tend to think the more you can do that, it can be the the key difference key difference between success and failure. Interesting. And, and, and do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Uh, yeah. I mean, for my favorite online tool, uh, you know, I love Zoom. Like, hey, listen, a lot of people hate Zoom. We're able to connect with folks around the world. I know it's very basic, but you have to, sometimes certainly as you get older, like you step back and go, I used to have to go to board meetings, have to in air quotes. I used to have to go to meetings. I have to, da, da, da. you and I can do an amazing podcast. I can sit in the board meeting. I connect with an entrepreneur in a way that we have to remind ourselves three or four years ago, this would have seemed unusual. And so I would say Zoom and any other video conference, no affinity to Zoom, but just the ease of use is extraordinary. So yeah, I'd probably put that up there mostly because I don't have to travel as much and I'm able to connect with both personally and professionally with folks that I Kenley would have not thought about this way had it not been for the pandemic. Got and then green, I am trying to teach my kids about money. So I've got my kids with a digital uh, credit card. I'm trying to teach them about money, but that's a, that's a personal challenge. Oh, what's, what's the name of the, uh, of that? We use green light, which is basically a, a way that you can give your kids some money and they can, try and figure it out. You can see what they're spending and give them an allowance and all that good stuff. So it's a pretty interesting tool and you can, they get a card and you know, with teenagers, you start to see them. I got three teenage boys. One spends every nickel he gets. One hasn't spent, it in, spent anything in his allowance. And the third is in the middle. So I think also just helps you understand how they think about money. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully teach them a little something about it. Interesting. I've, I've heard, heard about Green Library. I'm going to uh, you know, check that out. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Mike, what is the best way people can uh, reach out to you and know more about uh, your book, Mr. Monkey and Me, uh, and your VC from uh, Next Coast Venture? Yeah, so, yeah, thank you for, for asking. A reminder, all the proceeds go to charity I mentioned earlier, but it's uh, available on Amazon. It's Mr. Monkey and Me. Every dollar of this book goes to support a charity. Uh, my wife and I set up for diverse and underrepresented students into an entrepreneurship. It's available on Amazon. Um, I have my own website, mikesmerklow.com, where I have blogs about entrepreneurship, a test you can take, all this fun stuff. And then my firm is uh, Next Coast Ventures, all one word, uh, www.nextcoastventures.com. So we will put that in our show notes. Mike, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, same here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.